It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. It's safe to say that video games are now an essential part of our culture. Globally, it's already dwarfing other classic industries. Hundreds of millions of people around the world will be unboxing video games and downloading new updates this week, adding billions of dollars to an industry that's already richer than both the global box office and the music business combined. Even the US military, by far the most powerful war machine in human history, uses video games to recruit the next generation of soldiers. Now, this amendment is specifically to block recruitment practices and funding for recruitment practices on platforms such as Twitch.tv, which are live streaming platforms that are largely populated by children well under the age of military recruitment rules. On the show today is Vice News correspondent Dexter Thomas, who's hosting the new Vice TV series, Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. The show is getting a lot of buzz, and he's on to talk about it. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, Dexter, you are a Vice News Tonight reporter extraordinaire. How did you come to? How did you come to? I've seen many of your uh, many of your, your your segments. How did you come to Reset and working with the Waypoint crew? Yeah, so I mean the the simple answer is there was interest in from Vice in doing a show on video games, and I had done a bunch of reporting for Vice News Tonight on video games in the past. And so I think it really was just, look, Dexter, you like video games, you're into video games. We're interested in doing something with that topic matter. Do you have any interest? And I was just, why, yes, I do. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, I mean, because th- these are things, and a lot of the, even some of the episodes, a lot of them are things that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I was, I would have felt great if I got to do a six or seven minute segment on it, but we got to do full on episodes. Now add to that, that I had some things that I was interested in, various topics. And then you've got everybody from Waypoint. You have Austin, you have Gideon, you have Matt, you have Patrick coming in and saying, hey, what about this topic? What about that topic? And then we realized, look, okay, for season one, this is probably the best mix of stuff. And yeah, it just, it just kind of developed from there. So tell me about it. What are some of the episodes you cover in the show? Because I know, you know, anything Vice TV does and anything that that we do as a company in this sort of space, we definitely do. We like to do deep dives. I I hosted a show called Cyber War in the past, and it was, you know, a deep dive on hacking that I felt like the crew had put together that hadn't really been seen. And I feel similar vibes on reset. Yeah. So what what did you what did you cover across this? It's what, 10 parts? 10 episodes. Yeah, it's 10 episodes. Wild. It's a lot. That's great. Yeah. No, it's wild because usually it's, hey, shoot a pilot and we'll see if we like it maybe. And it was just, no, 10 episodes, go, just whatever, just do it. (laughs) And so it was great. But yeah, basically, um, I mean, the range is all over the place. It's from the U.S. military using video game technology to treat PTSD on the one hand, but then also using video game technology and Twitch to recruit teenagers into the military, uh, to esports, but kind of the dark side of esports. What happens when the game company cuts your game off? And who are the? We hear a lot about the winners. What about the losers of the esports hustle? Um, then you've got billion dollar franchises that are just now realizing that 
black players are not satisfied with their game and the options they're given to the game and they're starting to modify it. So what does that big company do? I'm talking about electronic arts here. Uh, to mm-hmm. games that, you know, what happens when games disappear? And that's one of the first episodes is the history that's being lost with video games. We're, we're basically, as the historian that I talked to, uh, they're no longer in a mode of trying to save video game history or preserve it. It's less that. He basically said, we're trying to stop the bleeding. Maybe the most volatile parts of video game history are what we call the the source material that went into making the game. The original source code that was written, the art that was generated, the source music and voice acting, all of that raw material, companies didn't do a good job of saving. And yeah, we're, we're trying to get behind the industry hype. We're trying to meet the people who change the ways that they play. Um, I shot a lot of this stuff in my backyard <laughs> because of COVID. Uh, bless, bless, bless the COVID. Yeah, bless COVID. But, but we also <laughs> shot some of it in the Pentagon. And so it's, a, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. So getting back to that question of like history and, yeah. and video games, I think that's the thing that, that struck me about this series and also just about thinking about video games in general. And I'm neither am I a gamer or like a video game aficionado. I find that I've always found them very fascinating from the outside. I was like the weird kid who would watch my friends play video games and never really have an interest in playing them myself. Well, so you are but, no longer weird because the rest of the world has caught up with you because look at Twitch. It's an entire yeah, exactly, platform which exactly. is based on people watching each other play video games. So it's not weird yeah, at I all. Mean, like, yeah, I, I loved it. I remember the t- two distinct times. I can remember watching a friend beat uh, Super Mario Brothers two, and mm. I can remember watching a friend beat uh, Zelda: Ocarina of Time on like on N sixty four, and it was just like mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> like I was like, oh my fucking God, this happened. Yeah. Well, how yo, many people have done this? Exactly. It's <laughs> many, real. <but laughs> and so, no, no, no. I think this is perfect because if you think about it, this is precisely why people like sports. Right. Yeah. We and love. I, I'm, a, I'm a sports fan. Yeah. I'm a sports fan. And so. we, there is, pe- people have been playing games of some sort. This goes back before recorded history. Right. Humans have always Absolutely. played games. Humans have always enjoyed, have found that entertaining and fun. But I think the second thing we do after we figured out that we like to play games is we also decided that we like to watch people play games, especially when they're really, really good at it. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is at some point it was going to be natural that we're going to do to video games what we've done to every other kind of game, which is introduce capital into the equation, which is to say that we're going to try to make money off of this. We're going to try to charge. Yeah. We're going to try to create leagues. And this is exactly what is happening, you know, for example, with esports. And so, you know, I, I would definitely say, for example, the tough thing about creating a show about video games, and I think the reason why what we're doing has not been done before is because it is hard, is because <laughs> there are a lot of people, just being real with it, I mean, the sort of tradi- the traditional way to go about this is something that can't be done in sports because the thing is nobody owns basketball, nobody owns football, but the biggest games that are out there, the ones that everybody's competing in, somebody owns that. Somebody owns Overwatch. Somebody owns right. Street Fighter. All these. So things you have are- to pay royalties to actually show them on TV. You can. And, uh, well, I mean, more, more importantly is if say, for example, if you want to run a tournament, the company will probably be cool with it, 
But if they, it, technically it is their intellectual property. So if they don't like something about what you're doing, they can say, you can't have this tournament. Shut it down. Ain't nothing Damn. you can do about it. Nobody can come up to you and say, hey, kids, playing basketball. Y'all stop. I own that ball. I own exactly. the intellectual property rights to spheres. <laughs> that doesn't happen. And, and so what happens is Spalding, you, Spalding stops it, you. Exactly. Spalding, Spalding, Uncle Spalding cannot come through, tell you to put down the ball and go home. Right. Or tell you to stop, <laughs> tell you to stop posting pictures of yourself slam dunking. You can't do that. Right. But technically speaking, this doesn't happen because it would make them an entire, you know, pretty unpopular. But a game company could shut that sort of stuff down. So we have a really interesting situation here where sports documentaries can get into the real heavy kind of dark stuff if they want to. It's tough for video games to do that because, for example, you might be worried about ruining your relationship with a game company. Right. Where so if you're if you if you play if let's let's say you're a Halo hmm. player and you don't you don't want to like upset the makers of Halo exactly by saying you know whatever problems I came from the game itself precise <laughs> and it's not like people don't complain about the game mechanics all the time because they definitely do but right <laughs> but you know for example I was gonna say like if I know if I know athletes they complain about everything I can only imagine that like that esports athletes are the same way exactly exactly so I would say. One of the struggles, I think, which can make it difficult for a show about video games is there may be an expectation for us to sort of focus on, oh, hey, here's what's coming out next and here's what's got the cool graphics, because that is something that a game company would be very much comfortable with. And so if you want to go interview them and talk to them, they'll be happy with that because it's, oh, you're going to spotlight mm -hmm. my game. Cool. But if you want to start asking mm -hmm. hard questions, you risk hurting relationships that can it's, reduce it's much access. like it's it's access it's, a lot of the stuff can be access journalism which i think makes it really difficult to make a show like this our solution was we just didn't do that <laughs> <laughs> well it's just to say it kind of sounds like the music like music journalism some music journalism exactly. can be extremely hard-hitting and uh, you find out insane shit about your favorite musician or whatever and then other times it's you know like the like a, a, a very flattering review Exactly, which which I think there's place for everything, right? Um, mm -hmm. But the thing is, if you can be a music fan, and if you just want to read a nice kind of puff piece profile about your favorite artist, boom, they got you covered. If you want to get, I mean, there was actually a documentary series called Behind the Music. If you want to get behind the music, there's something out there for mm -hmm. you. Same thing <laughs> with sports. If you just want to watch the recap and the highlights and the top tens, they got you covered. If you want to really, but then get, you got thirty for thirty. <laughs> then you got thirty for thirty. With video games, at least visually, now there's a lot of people on YouTube who are really getting into this, and that and that is beautiful. But a show, a documentary that really takes all this stuff seriously, it doesn't exist. And again, it's it's because mm -hmm. it's hard. But actually, I don't think it is that hard because the thing is, making a show about video games should not be going to the big companies and say please, large company, we would like to talk about your game. We promise we'll be positive about it. We don't have to do that because there are so many other people in the culture of gaming. It's not just the big companies that we're interested in. We're interested in the people who play them. Street Fighter is a great game, but I don't necessarily need to talk to Capcom to understand it. What I really want to know is I want to talk to the inner city kids who made Street Fighter what it is today in the at least especially in the united states street fighter is what it is today because inner city kids i'm talking black and brown kids who didn't really have mm. the money to buy a big console and who needed a place to a positive place to be around 
after school, they found that in arcades. When a lot of people hear the word arcade, they think of neatly organized rows of game cabinets, maybe in a nice suburban mall somewhere. But in cities like New York and Chicago and LA, the scene was very different. You could put a game cabinet pretty much anywhere, and that place became the arcade. And that's where fighting game fans became a fighting game community. And that's what built this all up. And that is what built the tournament scene. And, that, and that, that's where all of this came from. Right. And so mm, that's I did not what, know that. That's yeah, that's what and yeah, so we have a full on episode about that. Now we also in that same episode, and that's past, and there's a lot of beautiful stories in that past. In the present, there's also a lot of other issues. They they're dealing internally in the scene, in different fragments of the scene, especially with things like racism, with things like uh with things like abuse, with things well, like sexual ask. harassment and, and worse. Right? Yeah, go ahead. Well, was was gonna ask. I mean, you know, because Obviously, for example, I mean, I cover white nationalist terrorism and yeah. I remember I was asked beautiful, by- Beautiful beat, by the way. That is- uh, <laughs> Beautiful it beat. It keeps yeah. giving, unfortunately. It, it, late, I got to tell you, it's, it's, yeah, it's not, uh, it's business is booming yeah. uh, these days. God damn it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, but w- I remember being asked about it uh, by the editors at Motherboard mm. to sort of keep an eye on, on the latest Assassin's Creed game because it was, it involved Vikings- and of course, like, you know, I, I did started seeing that, yeah. that kind of stuff percolate on, on the chans and on the different, you know, the different boards and, and internal chat rooms that, that I, that I, that I would be monitoring. And it mm. just sort of the idea that, you know, a lot of games are made for white dudes and yeah. representation in it isn't, it's almost tenfold worse than even in Hollywood. So, I mean, how, is that getting better right now in, in gaming? And is there an appetite for it among gaming pe- people who buy video games? So that is that is a great question, actually. We happen to have a full episode on that, believe it or not. Um, so, <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you, you can't make this up. But for real, the perfect example, right? Uh, the Sims. So The Sims is, we have a full episode that is essentially just on The Sims. And The Sims, for people who aren't familiar, you've probably seen it around somewhere. It's basically a game where you can create an avatar that looks like you. You have a character and you just, you're not competing. You're not doing too much. You're just kind of hanging out. You build a house. You know, you you have relationships with other, you know, you can have a pet. You can have all these other things. You can decorate your house. All these other things. And this this... This franchise goes back, I think, about 20 years at this point. So it, it's an old franchise, and it is a massive franchise. We're talking billions of dollars spent on this game. And there are a lot of people who play it. So the interesting thing about this is a lot of people who consider themselves gamers, right? Capital G gamers as part of their identity, mm-hmm. don't consider people who play Sims gamers, which is wild. Because they probably spend more money and more time on these games. Well, a lot of people consider, and I'll just be real with it, a lot of people consider sims as a game for girls Hmm. and and they don't take it seriously when the people who play sims take it very seriously i knew no kidding and i knew a lot of people who played sims it wasn't just you know women and girls who played it yeah yeah (laughs) it's a pretty diverse crowd (laughs) no it's it's incredibly diverse and it always has been i mean the sims and and we're talking diverse really in every kind of way where the Sims allow, you know, you could you could have you could have couples in the game, right? The Sims has allowed yeah. same gender couples basically from the drop. We're talking early 2000s, so this wasn't exactly the norm for a video game. 
No, it wasn't. I, I, I remember that growing up because like one of the first versions was what, like 2002? So it, was, it was around there. Yeah. So something that has happened that's really interesting, though, is you can change your avatar. You can customize it. You can add different things to it, right? What started happening was a lot of black players, and I don't think just black players, but we, we happen to speak to a lot of black players for this episode, were saying, look, none of the options, there are all these options for different kinds of hair, mostly for Caucasian people, and it looks great. And you know, you can have red hair with spikes, red hair with a little bit of spikes, red hair with even more spikes, but there's one black, you know, there's one or two black hairstyles and they look terrible and the skin looks odd. The skin tones look odd. So they started modifying the game themselves. Black and brown people kind of just got used to, okay, these are the choices and I just, I'm a, I'm a roll with this one because this one's, this is as close as I can get. You made a different decision. We come in so many different shapes and sizes. Our hair comes in so many different textures and styles. Why are we not represented as such in games? And releasing these free patches, because the thing was you could buy extra things. As, as the series went on, they, EA, right? Um, they would release add-ons that you had to pay for. So if you want your character to look good as a black character, you have to pay, you potentially have to pay more money than a white person because they, they got pretty good options built into the game. So it's, it's wild. You're, you're literally having to pay more money if you are black to get the same variety of options that a white person does. And just to those, be able to, just to be able to have someone that looks more like you, whereas exactly, you know, the white folk can just, can just step in and, and, for and free you, almost. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and for a, for a simmer, right. For somebody who's into this, that is such an, an integral part of the game. Mm -hmm. It's almost the entire point. And so people started making their own modifications and releasing them online. I kind of love that, 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 that arose as the, as like, as the way to, 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 to remedy it. I mean, obviously the company like fucked up by not allowing it, but the people took it upon themselves to be like, nah, I'm going to make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the interesting thing is that, you know, for all, especially within game circles, I think a lot, it's just, oh, why are you just complaining? Just deal with it. What do you care? They didn't complain. They went and did something. And now what has happened in, in recently is that EA, the publisher, is actually starting to recognize it more. And they have been including these creators who are making stuff for free for years, they're bringing them in and they're releasing, That's excellent. they're releasing better hair texture packs. They're really, so you can actually create a character that looks more like you. So this is a problem that's existed forever. And the company is actually coming around and, and owning up to it. I had, I had a, a pretty long talk with per person who's basically sitting at the top of this project. And she acknowledges, yo, look, this took too long. We messed up. Here's what we're trying to do right now. Is everybody going to be satisfied with what she says? Maybe, maybe not. But they're actually addressing it, which is more than you can say for a lot of franchises. So to answer your question, is, are, are, is there an appetite for just really basic low level, the low bar of can you have a game where you feel like you can really get into it, which is the point of a video game? Absolutely. It's, it, it is getting better. You know what I mean? We, we definitely got some gloom and doom in the series. It's not all that, <laughs> but we're taking, we're taking yeah. a really serious look. I think what I like about it is we're taking a serious look at all these different parts of the culture and the business and the industry of video games and how it, we already know that it's integral into our lives. And we're just, we're taking it seriously. That's it. We just, we just said, look, 
this is serious stuff. It affects our lives in serious ways. We should we should have a serious talk about it. I and that's the thing that's the thing about this that I think is is great that you're doing this on reset because video games are it, it you know you talk about the history of it it goes back all the way to the what late 70s early 80s you have Atari you have you know how many I mean we've had so many different consoles in our lives yeah and games that have become like I, I feel like I've lived like many lives of of you know uh, viral video games like whether it was like GoldenEye to GoldenEye Halo yeah. remember GoldenEye remember that shit yeah and, oh uh, dude we remember, got we got a whole we got a whole episode on that yeah man <laughs> I remember I remember the Rumble packs and all, yeah. all that and then but then also now the U S Army does actually use video games yes. in multiple kind of kind of nefarious ways to influence the world of warfare. So mm-hmm. obviously this is a very serious subject and it's no longer just like, just like hacking, right? It's not like some, something to just sort of be compared to a bunch of guys in their basements, their mom's basements or whatever the joke is always or used to be. Yeah, You know it, what I mean? Like video games are, it's everywhere. Everyone's playing them and they're both used for good and good and evil. <laughs> it, precisely. I mean, this is, I think 2020 was an interesting inflection point for this conversation because you had, I would say any millennial age ish and below have always have been familiar with this. Kids know this definitely that video games are just part of your life. There is no real separation between real life and video games because it's part of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Which Mm -hmm. is to say that when you were, I, when you and I were younger, our parents could yell at us and say, go outside, get off that video game and go outside there's a bunch of kids right now where their parents can't tell them to go outside because they cannot go outside because it is not safe because there is mm-hmm. a pandemic. And so, yeah. and so they're seeing their kids do school online and it's just, wait, this school and the games and the everything else, this is all just really big, one big continuum. And so I think that is going to be something that gets people to pay a little bit more attention to this. Whereas before it might've been, ah, oh, man, it's just a bunch of nerds in their basement. No, man, it's, also, a th- that nerd in the basement stuff, it's not confined to the basement. It's also in the U.S. military. And I'm not <laughs> just talking about hardware. I'm talking about how they are recruiting young people right now. So the mm-hmm. same people who are cooped up inside, they're potentially watching the U.S. Army's Twitch stream and chatting with soldiers in the Twitch. Now, how do you feel about that? You could think that's amazing. You can think that's bad. But what is undeniable is... It is part of the conversation about video games, first and foremost, before anything else. And that is fascinating. And I th- that's, that's what we're trying to talk about. Absolutely. And it's, you know, great job. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> looking forward to this coming out. And I'm looking forward to this exploding over the internet because I think it's going to get a lot of eyeballs, truly. I think so. I think it's interesting. I mean, that, that's the thing. And I, I totally forgot to mention this, but I mean, the, the subtitle of the show or the full title of the show is Reset the unauthorized guide to video games. And that's kind of the whole point is we're not, nobody told us what we can and can't talk about here. So again, we're not just focusing on what's got the cool graphics and what games we love. We do have some of that. There's a couple episodes where there's parts of it. I'm just nerding out. That's it. I'm just telling you why this game is amazing or I'm arguing with somebody about why my favorite game is better than theirs. We have some of that. But also (laughs) we don't have to Again, we don't have to just go to the big game companies and say, hey, can you please let us review your game? We'll be nice. We're, ha- we're listening to the conversations that people are having about these, whether they're soldiers, whether they're esports athletes who 
had their career tanked because a big company pulled the plug on their favorite game to, I mean, you know, to an indie developer who's just trying to get out there and hustle and make it. And we're hoping to give you a little bit of a peek into what those worlds look like. And what days do they, does this show air? Yeah. So on Vice TV, uh, 10 p.m. Wednesdays, and that's starting on February 3rd. And it will, there's going to be 10 parts. And I'm sure at some point we'll also see it on YouTube. That's right. Yeah. So there, there's already two on YouTube right now, actually. You can watch one about video game preservation. And so that's one where we, we talk a good deal about GoldenEye and a game that got a fan game that, uh, of GoldenEye uh, that got shut down, got a cease and desist. And also, I won't spoil it, but if you ever played if you ever played NBA Jam, you have to watch this episode because I get to play a distant cousin of it that nobody knew existed. Um, and then another episode about the history of the fighting game industry, so or the fighting game community. So going all the way back to Street Fighter Two, all the way to those uh, to those arcades in New York and all that. And so those are the first two. Those are available online right now. You can watch those for free on YouTube. Uh, then it'll be on TV. Well, Dexter, thank you very much for coming on the show. And everyone out there, check Vice TV YouTube and Vice TV the channel to watch Reset the unauthorized guide to video games. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Thanks, dude. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Lorenzo, welcome to February 2021. Hi, Ben. Uh, I think you're wrong. This is still March 2020. (laughs) For a second there, you got me. Like, I was just like, fuck, did I just fuck something up? Like, did I get to, am I wrong? It's actually February, but it definitely feels like it's still March 2020. Yeah, it feels like, it feels like a nightmare, a repeating nightmare that will never end. It will end though. Let's be optimistic here. It's a matter of time. (laughs) Well, we'll see when I, I'll, I'll zoom you in when I get my shot, I'll cry. Uh, okay. So let's just, uh, let's, let's hop straight to the cyber mess of the week. Uh, the first one being connected loosely, well, not loosely, actually very much connected to the GameStop situation mm-hmm. and Robin Hood. Well, I should first ask, did you, did you, I didn't like, I don't, I don't do any stock market games. I'm, uh. I'm not a stock market guy, but I have to say I, I had a tremendous amount of, of guilt not having bought into this GameStop bullshit. Yeah, I also don't um, dabble in uh, stock market gambling. Uh, but yeah, for a second, I was like, man, if only I had invested $1,000 in GameStop last year. But, you know, that with that thinking is just 
Like you would never have done that because you had no idea about any of this. It's like the Bitcoin no. FOMO. You know, it's very easy to say, "Oh shit!" Exactly sure about Bitcoin uh, ten years ago, but in reality, even if you did that, you would have sold when it was a thousand dollars, and you wouldn't have become a millionaire. But yeah, uh, so yeah, this story from Edward, who has done great work covering Robinhood, which was the app uh, used by millions of people to to buy GameStop, and it's an app that. Um, has made investing very easy because it doesn't charge any fees on day trading. And the story this week is that despite the bad publicity that they got last week when they suspended trading on GameStop, AMC, and others, they're just as popular as before. Actually, they're bigger than before. Uh, Edward reports that they got uh, more, you know, billions in new investment. Um, they have uh, last week they got 177,000 downloads, which is twice as much as the week before. Uh, their daily users are up to almost 3 million. So I guess the lesson here is that no publicity is bad publicity or bad publicity is still yeah, publicity, I, would, I guess. I would say that's probably true. And uh, just a funny for listeners of the show who want to check out the story on Motherboard, there's a Robin Hood photo. And the statue? Have you, did you see the photo, Bonza? Yeah. In Nottingham, England, where I used to live. And I'm quite sure I found 19-year-old little Benny, little Benny Mac who was, was uh, drinking beers right on it uh, in t- circa 2008. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, great image. Great kid at the time. Uh, so next story. This is something I, I, I didn't like. Because it kind of just shows you how facial recognition is just mm-hmm. generally a, like a terrible, just a terrible, a terrible development. Period. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the fact that normal people were using it to identify capital protesters, even though that like you know people wanted to identify, and I was part of the part of the at least the Vice News crew that w- was helping identify people that that were involved with that really awful uh, attempted coup d'état. It's still kind of, it's a little gross, you know? Yeah, just to set the stage a little bit more, uh, this is a story uh, that reports how a lot of, uh, you know, everyday people on the internet uh, decided to become essentially private investigators and use a a Polish website called PMIs, which allows anyone to upload a picture and then scans the internet for any facial recognition matches. And apparently the website is not great. The the reporter Alice Hines uh, tried it with her own picture, and she found uh, she found some of the pictures that she really has, you know, that that are really her. But she also found doppelgangers, a soccer player. Uh, so you know, these are not perfect system. And uh, Alice uh, very uh, wisely includes all the already very well documented examples of uh, terrible facial recognition, like the three black men who have been uh, incorrectly arrested because of a wrong algorithm, AI algorithm. And, and yeah, I agree with you. I think that there is a, you know, first of all, there is a difference between you and our colleagues or people at the Post or the Times or whatever using tools like this um, to identify people because, you know, bound bound by our journalistic ethics, we're not going to just publish names uh, just because a website says this person is this other person. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I do feel a little icky about the idea of just uh, vigilantes on Twitter 
going after, you know, even if they go after people that are clearly bad people, right? Like, yeah, I guess it's it's more. I think it's more just the question, just the question surrounding. Not so much that people are vigilantes, like figuring out who's who, because I think that that's just that's always been happening in our culture, no matter what, right? I mean, like you had people tracking down Klansmen way back in mm-hmm. you know, the nineteen twenties. It's not so much that I think it's more, you know, the 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 tools like facial recognition is something that gets a tremendous amount of scrutiny at the government level, and I think most privacy activists would say that we should be scrutinizing it at almost any level. Because these power these these tools are very powerful, you know what I mean, and and the more and more they come into the the hands of just anybody that doesn't have controls, it, it's you know it, it's a bit it's it's something that's it, it's a bit nerve wracking. I think it's something I think we should all be kind of I I I would almost look at it. It's sort of like how you've had stalkerware become pretty commonplace, yeah. right? Like there these these sorts of technologies when they get in they get in the wider public, they can cause some damage. Yeah, it's just too easy. I, I just, uh, I just see. I just think we're not gonna too. We're not too far away from a day when someone on Twitter thinks they have identified a Capitol riot um, person who went to the Capitol riot, and they go and har- harass them in real life, and turns out that's not the real person. You know, it's just very dangerous. And I think that the discussion would probably be different if this was done on BLM uh, protest. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I agree. This there should be a lot of scrutiny, probably some regulation, and yeah, we need to really ask us if we want these kind of tools in the hands of anyone. Exactly, and that's my that's my point. You know, I mean, like the Chinese government, for example, has used facial recognition to just completely, you know, insane levels of big brotherness that you know they've they've received a lot of criticism for it. And it's just something to keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. All right, so this last one, I mean, thank God you did it. You did it. You found him. You found him. Lorenzo, you found him. You take over from here. I'm happy. Yeah, so this is a follow-up from the story we did a couple of weeks ago about a hacker uh, locking a bunch of uh, penis cages or chastity belts, chastity cages, whatever you want to call them, uh, which are, you know, just sex toys that some people enjoy using. And uh, the follow-up is uh, about uh, Sam Summers, a man who was a user or a customer of this device, and he's, he actually got his penis locked in when the hacker took control of, the, of all the devices. And it was not a very fun experience. Um, Summers told us in very pretty good detail how it all went down. He was just at home. Initially, he thought that it was his uh, partner who was doing this. And he quickly realized that, no, it was just a random person on the internet, which must be, you know, again, I think we talked about this two weeks ago. It's fine to laugh a bit, a little bit about this incident because, you know, in the end, uh, no one got hurt, even though Summers did get hurt. Uh, but, you know, this is, if you really think about it, this is just like some sort of sexual harassment or sexual violence, even though it's virtual, right? It's a ran- it's a mm-hmm. random person on the internet taking control of your intimate parts, blackmailing you. You know this is awful. It's basically a crime, and uh, and yeah, Summers had a really bad experience. He tried to pay the ransom first, hoping that this would just go away. Holy shit! Uh, this yeah, this story this story took a dark yeah, turn. But the hacker obviously was like, no, I want more money, uh, and eventually. Summers and his partner decided to buy some bolt cutters and he bravely cut through the cage 
Oh my and, God. Oh my God. Oh, take a second for that. Ugh. Yeah. And uh, he cut himself a little bit. He says he doesn't have a scar, but it really hurt. And, you know, it could have been much worse. And ultimately, you know, the really bad person and the people that we should be angry about here are the makers of this device because not only did yes. they secure their servers and their users, they also didn't think that it would be a good idea to maybe put a manual, uh, you know, a manual override or some way to unlock this in case things go wrong. In case it does, I mean, yeah. What Summers even told me that in practice, even if you lose connection or if your Wi-Fi is down or the battery dies on the device, you're locked. Like that is dumb. Like that should not happen. I mean, this this whole story, this whole story is absolutely insane. It is insane. Yeah, and it's a reminder that a lot of these devices, and not just sex toys, you know, this 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 story could have been, I mean, not the physical part, uh, but ins- uh, insecure insecure devices that don't have really good exactly yeah. made by small companies that don't really have the security bad coding skills to take care of it. They don't care, you know. The company didn't answer to our request for comment. They never apologize for all, any of this. So yeah. Don't trust the Internet of Things devices made by very small companies, especially if you could get hurt. But, you know, this is not victim blaming. This is not his fault at all. No, no. But I mean, no, like the guy shouldn't. This should never happen to anyone. It's a fucked up thing to do to someone. Uh, This kind of reminds me a little bit of how like in the early 80s and 90s and 2000s when you had the Internet of Things really kind of coming into into play. And at first it was, you know, industrial control systems and it became, you know, home like home baby monitors and weird things like that. And how we're like, there. even with all of the, that precedence, there's still like companies making these really shitty insecure devices that are easily hackable, that are increasingly influencing our, our lives as both a physical and virtual threat. And it's like, there needs to be some regulation on whether or not your code can just be absolute, for lack of a better term, dog shit. Yeah, that could be an avenue. Also, yeah, maybe some standards, you know, minimum standards that Internet of Things uh, producers have to implement on their devices. That could be a start uh, because otherwise, you know, this is going to keep happening, you know, and you mentioned baby monitors. We've seen so many examples of uh, creepers uh, talking to babies. It's just yeah, people spying on people through their internet connected cameras. It's just uh, It's just out of control right now. Absolutely. Well, Lorenzo, that uh, that just about does it for this week, this first week in February 2021. Uh, any big plans for next week? No, not really. I'm, I'm also being snowed in as we speak. So I think it's going to be internet and video games as usual. Internet and video games. And don't forget to and soccer. be... And don't do some, you better do something nice for Valentine's Day, Mr. Lorenzo. Yeah, I'll have to get creative this time. (laughs) All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Ben. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.